Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 5. The high priest in Jerusalem and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they were called together in the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail cell securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chiefs of the priests were at loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and questioned by the high priests. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teachings and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hands as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so in the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gehamil, the teacher of the law, who was honored by all people, stood in the Sahedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. When he addressed the Sahedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, Acts chapter 5 from the text that Jessica just read for us. If you need a Bible to use, you should find one available down in one of the chair racks around you. Uh, before we get started, I just want to say, uh, uh, I just found out this morning that, you know how it's, it's that season where there's the taste of Glen Ellen, and then there's the Lombard Parade today, and lilac, all the lilac stuff? Well, I just found out today that we have, in our midst, not just a, a lilac, a lilac uh, contestant, not just a lilac princess, but we have the lilac queen. And uh, I just want to give her a shout out, Alex Lyons. Uh, congratulations! Why don't you give her a round of applause? <clears throat> I, and I really never knew a queen before, so I figured well, I'd give her a shout out, right? Okay, so if you're a guest today, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Going Viral. It's a study of this first century document that records how the early church 
And the good news of God's love and grace went, as we would say, went viral, spreading very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And I was thinking about it this week, and if, you know, if I had to pick one word that best describes the earliest followers of Jesus, you know, whose lives and experiences are chronicled in the opening chapters of this book, the word I would use is courageous. Now, I realize there's a lot of different ways to define courage, but uh, there's one definition I came across recently that I find particularly helpful. It originates from a writer named Ambrose Redmoon. I don't know, has anyone ever heard of Ambrose Redmoon before? Um, no one has heard of him. Redmoon was, um, it, actually Redmoon was a pseudonym used by a guy named James Neil Hollingsworth, who was an obscure kind of 20th century beatnik hippie poet. Uh, and in 1991, he penned a now often quoted observation slash definition of courage. And he put it this way, Redmoon said, Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than one's fear. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than one's fear. And for me, this definition describes uh, the men and women of the early church who, although at times were afraid, uh, they believed that something else, someone else, was more important than their fear, which inspired them to unparalleled acts of courage. And I want to talk about that courage with you this morning, but in order for it to really make sense, I need to put it in its historical context. So let me give you a quick Reiki summary of where we are in the study. Up until this point, we've seen the, the church grow from a handful of Jesus followers in chapter 1 to well over 8,000 believers who uh, faced very little resistance from those in authority until chapter 4, when suddenly the churches uh, and the message of Jesus met some opposition. Uh, there was some hostility. There were uh, deliberate acts of injustice and persecution uh, beginning to take place. For example, one day in the, in the temple, uh, Peter and John were harassed by uh, the religious elites in Jerusalem. They ordered not to speak or teach anymore about Jesus or else. And with that, uh, with that threat hanging over their heads, the church got together and prayed, and they said, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And that's what happened. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, and they, sp they went out and they spoke the word of God boldly. But um, as we noted, that God-given boldness w didn't simply impact what they said. It impacted the way they lived with love and compassion and purpose and unity and ridiculous generosity. In fact, we're told that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any, any of their possessions was their own, but shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. And the culture around the church, you see, had never witnessed anything like this before. This was a new phenomenon. This was a new kind of community. And so as the church continued to live out God's grace uh, every day, meeting together in public, worshiping God, speaking and teaching openly about Jesus, and then with the apostles given power to heal the sick and free the spiritually oppressed, we're told that more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number, i.e. the church continued to grow at quite a clip. Now, as you would imagine, the, uh, that didn't go well with the religious elite in Jerusalem, especially the, um, the temple leadership. They saw what was happening, and, uh, and the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sanhedrin, or, or the members of the Sadducees, were, were filled with jealousy, the text says. They were just filled with jealousy, specifically toward the apostles. You know, what is jealousy? Jealousy is anger generated when you desperately want someone, what someone else has. So what did the apostles have? 
Well, they had the favor of the people. They had a rapidly growing number of followers. They had hope. They had purpose. They had compassion. They had generosity. They had a message not of oppressive guilt and legalism, but a message of God's love and grace, you know, news of Jesus, the Messiah. And in his name, they had power to do the miraculous. And the religious elites, man, they were insanely jealous of this. And so we're told that they arrested the apostles, all 12 of them, and they put them in a public jail. And when they do, here's what happens. Apparently during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out and gave them, he gave them these instructions and said, go stand in the temple courts and tell people all about this new life. Side note here, up until this point, um, no one seemed to know what to call this movement of God. It wasn't labeled uh, Christianity for quite some time. In fact, it's not until chapter 11 uh, that we see uh, you know, the movement reaches Gentiles up in Syria that anyone calls followers of Jesus Christians. It's not until then. Christian literally meaning uh, one belonging to Christ or Christ's people or the Messiah's people. Uh, but here the angel refers to what was happening this movement as, as this new life, which may, may seem strange at first, but if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Because the apostles, and really all the, all the followers of Jesus in the church, they weren't just talking about God's love, and they weren't just talking about forgiveness, they weren't just talking about grace, they weren't just talking about sacrifice and generosity and servanthood, they were actually experiencing it. They were living it every day in their culture. In other words, genuine biblical Christianity was not and is not simply a cognitive affirmation of certain religious dogmas. It's a way of life. Uh, it's, a, it's a new way of both thinking and living. In his commentary on the book of Acts, theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way, it was a way of life in the sense that life itself had come to life in quite a new way. A force of life had broken through the normally absolute barrier of death and had burst into the present world of decay and corruption as a new principle, a new, a new possibility, a new power. And it was this life, of course, which was carrying the apostles along with it like a strong wind driving sailboats across a wild sea. And so the angel instructs John, Peter, Matthew, the rest to go to the temple to stand there and tell everyone about this new life in Jesus. And the next morning, that's exactly what they do. At the same time, the religious leaders send some officers to the jail to get the 12 to bring them in for questioning. Well, the officers go and they get there. They don't find Peter and the guys in jail. The outside guards were still in place, but the apostles were gone. Uh, nowhere to be found. In, in some inexplicable way, they got out. No one knew how. And everyone was freaked out by it a little bit. So the report gets back to the leaders that they weren't in jail. And then, then they get wind that the, their apostles were actually back in the temple teaching about Jesus. So they send the officers out, and they round the, uh, the disciples up. And they do so without causing any big thing, because they, they were afraid of a riot. But they get them together. They bring them back um, to the religious guys, who at this point were both confused and furious. Uh, and the high priest says to them, look, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. I.e., you're not only disobeying us, you're trying to pin the blame on us for what happened to your Jesus. To which Peter and the apostles reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. 
God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We're witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, (laughs) given the anger, given the jealousy, given the authority of these religious leaders and the power that they wielded, the apostles were in a rather precarious situation. And uh, I'm sure they realized that and, that and they were afraid, and yet their fear didn't keep them from responding courageously. In fact, what they do and what they say, I think, offers us insight on what true courage is really about. See, in our culture today, it seems like courage is defined as being brave enough to pursue happiness for ourselves at any cost. You know, it's, it's very narcissistic. But for Peter and the rest of the guys, that just wasn't the case. So for what it's worth, here are a few observations about courage as it's revealed uh, through the apostles. First, courage is indeed uh, the judgment or belief that something or someone else is more important than our fear. Uh, For John and Peter and the rest, clearly that something, that someone was God, right? They said, look, we must obey God rather than human beings. Here's my Ray K translation. They said, God is more important to us than anything else. Our fear and our reverence for him is far greater than our fear of you religious guys. And so with all due respect, we have to honor and obey God first and foremost. Now, I'd be lying if I stood up here and told you this is how I live every moment of every day. Uh, In fact, I think we would all be misrepresenting ourselves if we said that. Because if the truth be told, for us today, things like, you know, personal success relationships, um, acceptance, approval, recognition, comfort, safety, security, all these things we fear losing in life. They're very important to us, you know, to the extent we'll do most anything to get, to get them and to keep them because our fear of not having them trumps most everything else and in some cases, even God. Is that true? For example, our fear of rejection can keep us from speaking out on what we believe to be true about life and death and specifically about Jesus. Fear of losing our everyday luxuries, our comfort, our financial security keeps us from being as generous as God calls us to be. Fear of failure pushes us to work 70 hours a week, leaving us little energy for family or friends and virtually no time for God. And the list goes on and on and on. Here's the point. The courage of the apostles and early believers flowed out of their firm belief that, that God was more important than their fear of anything in this temporal, fleeting life of ours. And so here's a question for us. Do I, do you, believe that God is more important than your fear? And if so, what act of courageous obedience has demonstrated that in your life recently? What courageous act of obedience have you done for God? Have you demonstrated for God? Because the, the apostle said, they said, apostle said, man, we, we must obey God first in all things, in all things. Which also tells me that courage is a choice. A choice to do what's right even when it's not expedient. You know, in defense of the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, look, they gave Peter, John, and all the rest an out. They gave them a, they gave them a choice. They said, look, do what we say. Stop teaching about Jesus, stop blaming us for his death, or suffer the consequences. And of course, for the apostles, it 
it seemed like it was, not, it was kind of a no-brainer for them. And, you know, as hard as it is for us to imagine what that was like, to imagine in our cultural context to have to make that kind of a choice, I don't know, it seems like something worth thinking about. You know, imagine what that would be like. I mean, what choice would we make if someone in authority uh, wielding a lot of power said, hey, stop being a Christian, stop going to church, stop giving to the cause of Christ, stop worshiping, stop doing this, that, and the other thing, or else suffer the consequences. Lose your, lose your scholarship, lose your promotion, lose your job, lose your income, lose your, your stuff, lose your freedom, lose your life. What would we do? Courage is a choice, see? For the apostles, courage also meant being principled in the face of danger and opposition. I mean, think about it. Despite the potential consequences here, with moral and spiritual integrity, Peter and, and, and the guys, they hold to and they speak the truth. First, they speak the truth about the gospel of grace, right? They say, God, our, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and by grace forgive their sins. We're witnesses of these things. So they speak that truth. But notice that wasn't the only truth they spoke. Keep in mind, these religious leaders uh, not, not only wanted the apostles to stop teaching people about Jesus, but to stop blaming them for his death. They said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. But the thing, the thing is, they were guilty. They were absolutely guilty. I mean, remember when Jesus was arrested and brought to Pilate, uh, and Pilate had him flogged, had him tortured, and then he brought him out before a group of people. Who, 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 were, who were the people? They were the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the temple leaders, the chief priests. Pilate said, I find no basis on which to charge this man for any crime. And it was these same religious officials who viciously screamed, crucify him. And, and they said to Pilate, look, if you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. And Pilate was like, but he says he's your king, king of the Jews. And they said, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And so as much as these men wanted to deny their culpability, what the apostles said was absolutely true. They said, God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. And as I see it, you know, the, considering the real danger here that they were facing, the apostles' courage to speak the truth no matter what was nothing short of heroic. There's a kind of heroism rarely seen in our world today. Walter Truett Anderson uh, is an author and social psychologist who wrote a book a while back called Reality Isn't What It Used to Be. And in the book, he talks about truth and courage and culture and all these things, and he makes a fascinating observation. He says, you know, today our leaders are stars, not heroes. Stars are surrounded by crowds. Heroes walk alone. Stars consult focus groups. Heroes and true leaders consult their conscience. And he's right. And so the leaders of the early church, the apostles, acted heroically in that they, they knew what was true. They knew what was true, true about the religious leaders, true about Jesus' death and resurrection, true about God's offer of forgiveness of sin and his call of repentance. And despite the danger of doing so, with courage, they stand and they speak the truth, which tells us something else about courage, that courage is commitment. 
Commitment not to just to something, but to someone. Because notice, Peter and the guys say, God has exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince. Prince, fascinating term. It's a Greek term that's used here. It was a rare one in the New Testament, only used four times. And here it's rendered prince. Elsewhere it's rendered captain, um, pioneer, or leader. So it's a very rare New Testament term. But here's the deal. It wasn't a rare term in classic Greek literature. It was actually a common term. It was used quite a lot, most often translated champion. In fact, here's something interesting. Along with other heroes of Greek mythology, this term was used mostly of Hercules. The great Hercules, you know, the term refers to someone of great power and resolve uh, who explores new territory, who leads the way against the enemy, defeats them, and brings about victory and peace. And Peter and the guys say, Jesus is our prince, our leader, our divine champion, and we are committed to him. In addition, their courage was born out of humility because not only do they name Jesus Prince and Champion, but they name what else? Savior. In short, all of them, Peter, John, Matthew, James, Thomas, all of them humbly recognize their own sin and their own brokenness as human beings, and they understood their need of a Savior, a Savior to do for them what they could not do for themselves. It was the, it was the very opposite of the religious leaders. The very opposite, because... Although they were looking for a Messiah to come and rescue the nation from Rome, on a personal level, they seemed to feel no need of repentance, no need of a Savior. And with arrogance, they rejected the whole idea of Jesus dying for their sin. And instead, they put their hope in their own religious works and self-righteousness. A lot of people today do the same thing. Not necessarily with the viciousness of the temple leadership, but they do the same thing. They put their hope in their own good works and pious religiosity. But I suggest to you that that kind of arrogance will never grant you true courage, especially in the face of, uh, of eternity. Uh, Ann uh, Anne Patchett is an uh, American novelist who in 2012 was named... Uh, listed by Time Magazine as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. And in an article she wrote for the New York Times titled Scared Senseless, she talks about the risks and dangers of our existence. And she says this, The fact is, staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we're always hedging against mortality. Find out what the profile is and identify the ways in which you do not fit it. And then she talks about terrorism and random shootings and those kind of things. And at the end, she says, despite our best intentions, death is still, for the most part, random, and it is absolutely coming. Now, as morbid as that sounds, and as much as we would like to deny it, Patchett is right. It is, death is absolutely coming. But she leaves her reader with no solution to the fear of that. Here's the point. When facing the reality of death, religious people, like the temple leaders, try to muster up courage by way of their own good works and religious efforts. But at what point do you know you've been good enough? At what point do you know? See, when facing death, courage in oneself tends to crumble and insecurity. I understand the apostles, they stood facing the best, uh, facing at best prison, at worst death, 
their courage didn't crumble because it, it didn't come from religious arrogance or self-reliance. It came from a humble realization that they needed God's grace. They needed a Savior, and that Savior was Jesus. And so their courage was about confidence, confidence in what they knew to be true. Namely, Jesus was put to death on a cross, raised to life. He is our champion. He is our Savior. And all who repent and put their faith in him are forgiven of sin and granted life eternal. And they said, they said, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So I have a, there's a lot of other stuff in the text. I'm running out of time, so let me just give you a couple more things about this that I, th- I think it's important for us to notice. I, I don't have a lot of time to go into them, but as I look at the apostles, it seems obvious to me that the kind of courage they exhibited, the kind of courage we're talking about this morning, is, is a courage that's available to everyone. Not just to the strong, but to the weak. Not just to the poor, but to the rich. Not just to the educated, but the uneducated. Not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile. To everyone. How is that possible? It's possible because like Peter and the rest of the believers in the early church, courage is empowered by the Spirit of God at work in his people within us. See? So the text goes on to say that when the religious elite heard all this from the apostles, they saw their boldness, they were absolutely furious, just furious that these unschooled, ordinary guys refused to be intimidated, and they wanted to put him to death. They wanted to kill him on the spot, and probably would have, had it not been for a guy, a guy named Gamaliel, who was a prominent Pharisee. In fact, he's one of the most famous religious leaders of the day. You can read about him in extra-biblical literature. Famous guy. He gets up, and he has the apostles taken out of the room, and he says, look, we've seen this before. We've seen this kind of movements, these kind of movements before. They all end up the same way. He says, remember the guy Thutis? He came on the scene. He, he claimed to be somebody important. He got about 400 followers, but he, when, he, when he was killed, what happened to them? They all took off. No one ever saw those guys again. And what about Judas the Galilean? He showed up around the census time. He led a revolt. He was killed. His followers scattered too. He says, therefore, listen, here's my advice. Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God himself. And his reasoning persuaded the group to, to, to free John and all, all the rest But before they do that, we're told, they called the apostles in and they had them flogged. They had them tortured. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Then they let them go. And how did the the 12 respond? They respond courageously. We're told the apostles left rejoicing because they'd they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. So here's my Reiki summary of that. Courage. Courage accepts the reality of suffering without resenting it. You know, the apostles weren't masochists. They, neither were they crazy. They didn't, they didn't leave rejoicing because they liked the torture. They were rejoicing because they stayed true to Jesus, their Savior, their champion, who himself suffered for them and for us, and who warned, who warned them that suffering to some degree or another would be part of following him. And you know, as I read this section... I couldn't help but wonder, who got it first? Who got tortured first? And was it Peter? Was it Thomas? Was it Andrew? Who, 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 who took it first? Because whoever it was set the example for the rest, with each of them eventually standing there 
taking a brutal flogging, which at the time meant 39 lashes with a whip embedded with bone and, and metal. And what that told me is that courage is contagious. As the famous pastor and author Billy Graham once put it, when one brave person takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. And then get this, the apostles didn't just leave the scene rejoicing, they left with great purpose and resolve. And we're told that day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stop. Never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Or to put it another way, courage sees a greater cause beyond ourselves. For Peter and the guys, the most important thing wasn't their fear. It was making sure that as many people as possible heard the good news of God's love and grace offered in Jesus. And they were willing to do whatever necessary to make sure that news got out. Whatever it took, they were willing to do it. See, it's impossible to study the early church and her leaders and not recognize the, incre the incredible bravery and audacity of these men and women who were serious about this new life in Jesus and serious about what they believed and who they believed in. And clearly, as we see here in Acts 5, this new life wasn't easy for them. It wasn't easy. In fact, it's about to get harder as persecution of Christians begins to ramp to amp up here. And, uh, and, we shouldn't, and therefore, we should never make the mistake of thinking that those in the church weren't afraid because they were. Yet they exhibited true courage because courage is not about the absence of fear. It's about a firm belief that something else, that someone else, is more important than one's fear. And so these followers of Jesus took a heroic, historic, and courageous stand. It's a stand every believer at some point or another, in some form or another, has to take. When despite our fear of loss or rejection, poverty, suffering, or death, we say, we must obey God above all else. And true courage isn't just saying it. It's doing it. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, oftentimes when we read of the apostles, uh, we have a tendency to think of them as special. And in a way they are. I mean, they led the church at its earliest stages. Um, but the, tr the fact is they really... They really weren't that special. They were just average, average human beings who experienced fear like us. You know, fear of rejection, um, fear of loss, fear of pain, fear of suffering, fear of imprisonment, fear of death, all of these things. That we all experience them as human beings. But, but what made the apostles different is that they did not allow their fear to hold them back because they believed that something someone was more important than their own fear and they committed themselves to you and they committed themselves to, to Jesus and bringing this good news of his love and grace to our world and they weren't going to let anything stop them and so with great courage, they stood before um, these religious officials and um, they spoke the truth. But more than that, they, they lived out the truth every single day in their lives. They had this, this, this new life of compassion, of forgiveness and grace and generosity, a life that um, truly impacted 
their community, their city, their world, and history. So I pray this morning that we would understand what courage really is. Um, and we would, we would not let our, allow our fears to keep us, to hold us back. And that we recognize there is something, there is someone more important than our fear. And that's, that's you are God and that's our Savior Jesus. And so uh, we thank you for your love in our lives, for your grace and your goodness to us. That Jesus is the Prince. He is our champion and Savior. And uh, may we live our lives in such a way to honor him and to bring the message of grace to, to those around us. We offer this time of worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? I want to thank you all for uh, being with us this morning. And um, there's so much in, in this book that we could talk about. And like, for example, there's, there's this whole outplay in, in, in this, the interaction here between the apostles and the religious leaders that really represents our culture, if you think about it, because I didn't have time to get into this, but actually I'm going to take a minute here, so uh, so uh, because this is so good, look, you have the Sadducees over here, right? The Sadducees, they were Sadducee for why? Why? You guys remember, right? Because they didn't believe in life after death. It made them sad, you see. I know that's goofy, but you'll never forget this. They just believe, you know, be a good person, because when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. This is your chance to be a good person tribute somehow, but when you're dead, you're dead, that's it. Then you had the, you had the, the, the religious Pharisees who, um, who believed in life after death. They believed in resurrection, but they said, man, you got to be good enough. You got to keep the law. You got to keep the rules. You got to do the right thing all the time or else you're not going to make it. So you got to be a good enough person. So then you had, you had this group. And then over here, you had the apostles who represented Jesus and said, no, it's not. It's about the grace of God and Jesus, our, our champion, our Savior. He came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's about the grace of God, eternal life offered in forgiveness of sin. And when you think of it this way, it represents our culture today because our culture is this. You have these guys over here who say, we're just accidents of nature with no meaning and no purpose going nowhere, just blobs of of atoms accidentally formed together. Love isn't meaningless. What you think about things is we're going nowhere. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Naturalism, right? Then you have the religious crew over here that says, no, no, God's there, and there's something for us. There's heaven and everything. You just got to be a good person. So you have that group. You have the religious group. And then over here you have biblical Christianity that's still saying the same thing. No, it's about the grace of God and Jesus. Those are the options. It's funny how, how, how things change over the centuries, but in, in so many respects they say the same. It's the same worldviews. Those, those are the three options. Nothing, meaningless, religion, God's there, you got to earn your, his favor, or Christianity. It's all about the grace of God and, and, and believing in Jesus, embracing him, experiencing God's grace, and that changes us from the inside out. People of compassion and generosity, and people of courage. I hope you understand the difference. I hope you make the choice on this side of the equation because it is the truth. And uh, if you don't, if you still have questions about that, following service, some of our prayer team folks will be down here. You can come talk to 
talk with them about it or talk to someone you know from Parkview. They'll be able to share with you about their faith journey in Jesus. But, uh, and I, I just hope you understand the difference because you, you, you need to make an informed decision. Uh, I also hope you can come back next week because as the church explodes onto the historic scene, I mean, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And that growth brings about some challenges uh, in the church community and some of the first big challenges. And so we're going to look at how the apostles help uh, the church maneuver through those next week. I think you'll find it fascinating. But uh, hope, so I hope you come back. In the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for you. And now, Lord, I, I do pray that as your people, as, as the church leaves the building, as we go back out into our world, that we would be people of courage, true courage. Not just courage to live and pursue happiness uh, for ourselves at any cost. It's so narcissistic. But instead, true courage that we're living for you and for this, this truth that's greater than ourselves, truth of the gospel, the gospel, the good news of, of grace in Jesus. And so I pray this week that you would give us an opportunity to be courageous for you, to be heroic in a sense, to do something courageous for the sake of the kingdom. And uh, in order to do that, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would place your hand of grace and peace, strength and power on your church today. In Jesus' name.